Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, episode 21. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. My guest this episode is Dustin Kensrew, frontman for the band Thrice. I first met Dustin 18, 19 years ago, actually, when doing a profile on the band Thrice for OC Weekly, just a few months after I had moved to Orange County, California. We kept in touch over the years from both that journalist, musician kind of relationship, mutual friends, and of course, following everything he's done with his band, his solo work. When I first started developing the concept for No Prize from God, Dustin was a no-brainer add to my wish list of guests. We've actually been talking about having him on the podcast since maybe before it even started a few years ago. And since that time, since we first started discussing it, Dustin actually started a podcast of his own. And at the moment, I'm hard-pressed to think of anything else in the podcast space that is as similarly thematically in line with what I'm doing here on No Prize. So if you're a listener of this show, I highly recommend you check out Carry the Fire podcast. In the podcast description, Dustin explains how he's always been fascinated by the really big questions and spent his life as a songwriter and thrice and as a solo artist wrestling with those questions and started a new phase of that exploration with this podcast where he goes into conversations with people from all sorts of backgrounds, beliefs, and professions. Uh, as he likes to put it, digging into those big questions through the lens of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And if you're a listener to this show, you know, what we do here is conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. If you're finding No Prize from God for the first time via Dustin, welcome. And like every podcast tells you, the best thing you can do to help here is to leave a five-star rating and a nice little review wherever you listen. But more importantly, explore the back catalog, featuring episodes with Maddie Mullins of Memphis Mayfire, Jesse Leach of Killswitch Engage, Episcopal Priest Broderick Greer, Integrity Frontman Dwight Halion, Tim McTagg of Under Oath, Satir of Satyricon, Max Cavalera of Soulfly, Ryan Clark of Demon Hunter, Karen Crisis of Gospel of the Witches, author Michelle T, playwright Peterson Toscano, Kellen Quinn of Sleeping with Sirens, Nurgle of Behemoth, Miles Kennedy of Alterbridge, and many more. You can find No Prize from God at the newly launched NoPrizeFromGod.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. And definitely, again, if you're into the stuff that we're doing here on No Prize from God, you're going to want to follow Dustin on Twitter as he's often engaged in conversations about a lot of the things that are of interest to me here with what we're doing. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out our other podcasts like Speak and Destroy, a podcast about Metallica, and Pop Curse, Musicians Talking Movies. So here it is, my conversation with Dustin Kensrew. This is No Prize from God. Stay in your grave. I'm not a slave to us. 
talking about this forever. It's nice to <laughs> yeah, finally be finally be sitting here doing it. It's funny. A couple of people have asked me, "When are you going to have Dustin on No Prize from God?" And I'm like, "Well, we've we've actually been talking about it, and we've been talking about it so long that he's started a, a podcast of his own <laughs> since then. <laughs> since we started talking about it. So yeah, happy to have you on. And uh, thanks for it, being patient. Yeah, I don't know. It's my pleasure. How's it? Uh, how's it been going? How has your podcast experience been for you since you? waded into the waters uh it's been good um i feel like i'm a better interviewer than an interviewee uh most of the time so uh yeah i like i like being on that end of it i think because i get frustrated with how many interviews i do that are i don't they feel like uh color by number kind of thing. And I struggle to feel engaged in whatever I'm being asked about or, um, you know, some of it's cause you've been asked the same thing so many times, but a lot of it's like people, uh, I, I think a lot of people don't know how to interview well and think about, you know, what, what are you asking, actually asking this person? Is that going to engage them? And if not, why? And how can you engage them in, in actually thinking and, and being a little bit off, um, you know, the autopilot track? So, yeah, I like trying to craft that kind of experience. I love this conversation already because one of the things I've been doing for the last couple of years, uh, I started doing media training for bands. Um, and mm -hmm. their publicity teams and management teams. I've done it for Epitaph, 5B Management, who you know does Slipknot and Lamb of God and Megadeth, uh, E1, Century you gotta, Media. You got to train, train me. But basically, what it is 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 yeah, it's training people on both sides of the table. Since I've been on both sides of the table, and like you, you know, we we've had a pretty diverse experience on all the different sides of this. How to have a good conversation, ask a good question, give a good answer, steer yourself out of conversational ditches and mostly develop your own story. Like what is it that's interesting and unique about our band and what do we have to say? And what are some ways that we can come in with our talking points? You know, not quite as contrived as a talking head, but in that neighborhood to where you can take a bad question and pivot and transform it into a good answer. So you're essentially answering the question you want to answer, even if it's not what you've been asked. And, yeah. you know, of course there's who are your influences? What does the band name mean? What's the new album title all about? What was it like working with so-and-so? How's the tour going? Uh, you know, all this stock stuff that is going to put you as the artist in robot mode when you're answering those same questions over and over I think one of the best trials by fire that I've had was, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I started doing press junkets for movies, you're going into a room where this director or this actor has been sitting three days straight, eight, nine hours a day with 50 to a hundred journalists coming in and out of the room each day, getting mm -hmm. about four minutes a piece, all asking the same questions. Yeah. So that was a, a great opportunity for me to hone the skill of, okay, I've got four minutes. I've got 10 minutes. 
how do I shake this person out of robot mode and get an interview that's going to be different than the other 100 interviews that were done in this room today? And that's a challenge, especially in that abbreviated amount of time, but it's something that I think I've perfected over the years to a degree. One of my icebreakers would be to think about what question they had been asked the most and come in and ask it. And then when they're halfway into their answer, go, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to ask you that. And that would sort of like immediately shake them out of uh, robot mode. You know, I remember uh, the first time I tried that was with uh, Paul Walker, rest in peace. He was promoting a, a pretty bad time travel movie. And I came in and I sat down and I introduced myself. And then I said, so if you could travel back anywhere in time that you wanted to go, where would you go? And he's like, well, and he starts answering me. And I go, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you that. And he's totally, he busts out laughing. And I'm like, how many times have you answered that in the last two days? And he's like, oh, dude, hundreds. And then it's like we could have a conversation as like two humans, like kind of outside the the traditional uh, factory-like mindset that goes into that. So, yeah, I would imagine for you as an artist being on the other end of that and being asked a lot of the same things. A lot of information that's available elsewhere, too. You know, as somebody who writes a lot of band bios, one thing I like to tell bands in those settings is, look, let's try to get all the information in here that you don't want to be answering on this entire album cycle. And some people are still going to ask you anyway, but hypothetically they'll have read the bio and so they'll know how the band came together and that you have a new guitar player and that this was the first time you worked with this producer and that, you know, just mm -hmm. like this basic, so you can hopefully get into some conversations that will go beyond that. What do you think are some of the, skills that you've learned and been developing over the course of doing this podcast that you were able to take from the world of being the guy from thrice getting interviewed to now host an interviewer yourself what would you say are some of the your big takeaways about what you wish people would do <laughs> when they're um, when they're on this side of it i mean i think a lot of it is is doing a bit of legwork right like and not like i want to be asking the questions that form after I know at least a bit about who this person is or what they're about. Um, and for me too, I think I have, you know, an angle that I'm going with the show. I'm trying to, you know, look through these lenses of the good, the true and the beautiful. And so the combination of getting some background information, you know, I might not know a ton. Some of the guests I'm going to know more about, um, but trying to connect what they're talking about, what their background is, and um, like how to look at that through these lenses um, and what it, you know, how that connects to their experience of being a human being. And, and so I think if you have, you know, whatever you're kind of interviewing for, I think having some kind of angle like some some sort of slant to whatever you're trying to do can make the conversation a little more interesting um and yeah i think i think trying to to shake things up from the start and it doesn't have to be like i think there's a ton of ways to do that what i kind of do is um, i ask people what gave them a deep sense of wonder as a child because i think it as a question uh automatically humanizes 
um, someone who's maybe from a different place than you, and it uh, it gives you a little bit of an insight into, I think, their natural character, what makes them tick deep down, um, and I think it disarms them uh, a bit and gets them out of you know robot mode and into yes. uh, yeah just being interested in talking about things. I think that's essential. It's a there's a you know it's a cliche now that everyone has a podcast. And I think one of the things that's important about standing out in the wide field of it is having an angle. You know, you hear a lot of people that say like, oh, I want to be Joe Rogan. I want to be Mark Marin." And it's like, yeah, that's that's more of a one in a million shot, right? Where those those guys started really early. They had pretty unique backgrounds and diverse relationships with different people. And it's more of a thing where people tune in just to hear that person's take on what's being discussed with whoever's yeah. coming on. But I think for the rest of us and for everybody else out there, you know, my favorite podcast is how did this get made? And and that's a very clear, like they're going to watch a bad movie and they're going to talk about it. You know, like if I can explain what the premise of a podcast is in a quote unquote elevator pitch in a, in a sentence or two, I think that that's not only more interesting, more of a hook to kind of get in when you have this anchor and listen to, but it's also, I think, better for the guests because, you know, if I have Randy from Lamb of God on my Metallica podcast, he knows that we're primarily going to talk about Metallica and the role that it's played in, in his life for an hour, as opposed to, you know, let's talk about the time you were in prison. Let's talk about, you know, all this stuff that he's, that's mm -hmm. so broad where we're just talking about anything and everything. And, and, and obviously there's an appeal to the anything and everything approach, but there's so much out there that I think what you've done with yours and what, what I'm trying to do with mine is by having a little bit more of a narrow focus, you can have more compelling conversations that are, are going to be more satisfying on both sides. I also think to your point uh, in terms of doing your homework and, and things like that, active listening is so important. Right? Yeah, for so, sure. Uh, and there's so many interviewers that come with their questions on a note card or on their iPhone and they're just staring at their next question, waiting to ask it while you're talking. I, yeah. I think that's probably what bothers me. Uh, and maybe at least as much as not doing any good prep, you know, is, mm. is not actively listening because at that point, basically you're not having a conversation and that feels just intensely draining to me. Yeah. Um, it just feels like I, and I, that's part of my personality too, is, uh, I'm pretty like, uh, withheld and private with my own stuff. Um, mm -hmm. unless I feel some sort of like comfortableness or reciprocity. And, um, so if I feel like I'm basically talking to your tape recorder, I, I'm just so checked out. <laughs> so, uh, it's hard for me cause I want to be like really prepared um, but I've, I've been kind of scaling back as I go with how much I try to prep beforehand. I basically want a few good hooks to be able to come back to if I need something. But, um, if I'm too focused on that, I'm killing the flow of the conversation. Absolutely. I try to come in prepared with bullet points. And like you said, if you need to fall back on them, but also see where the conversation will lead us, you know, there's, yeah, there's nothing worse than someone with a piece of paper going, Oh, tell me about your album title. And you're like, oh, it's about this extremely harrowing and, and tragic loss that I experienced in between the last two records. 
okay, so why did you choose this song as your next single? Yeah. You know, it's like, how do you, how do you just blow past something that is begging for a follow-up question or further examination? As you said, that level of comfort is so important. And I try to come in with something that establishes some trust right out of the gate, right? Where you can, you can demonstrate that you're informed and, and sort of worthy of elevating the conversation beyond the standard interview. Uh, you know, years ago, I had the opportunity to spend a half an hour with James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett. Um, and it was for a VMA piece about Johnny Cash. And basically, Kurt Loder had conducted what I believe ended up being the final interview with Johnny Cash ever. And we were running a package around that. And mm -hmm. then I was tasked with collecting sound bites from people who had been inspired by Johnny Cash. So, you know, I got to talk to Chris Cornell. I was like, did a lot of great interviews basically to get one or two sound bites about Cash. But in sitting down with James and Kirk, you know, I'm this guy from MTV. I had this like stupid faux hawk at the time. You know, they don't know who I am or, you know, why they should care. And when it, I finally sat down and it's just the three of us and the camera guy, one of the first things I did was in my first question mentioned something about Kirk being an exodus. And you can just see like both of them kind of sit up a little bit like, oh, oh, okay. Like this guy's not just some clown <laughs> from mm -hmm. MTV who was, you know, with Britney Spears this morning. He's, uh, yeah, he knows a little something about us beyond, you know, inner Sandman. Yeah. I wanted to ask you where some of your earliest ideas about faith and, and life's big questions, where and how that stuff entered into your life? You know, was it something that you were kind of raised with a certain set of ideas about that? Or how did that yeah, first come was, into your uh, life? Very much just kind of uh, raised in an evangelical uh, kind of church background, pretty non, uh, I don't know, just kind of plain old non-denominational evangelical church. Um, and yeah, was there a lot as a kid, you know, every Sunday and youth groups and summer camp things and, um, yeah, all that stuff. And I, I think because I'm wired a certain way, I, always was like uh, very into knowing all the answers and figuring it all out. Um, so I knew the Bible really well and at least, you know, the, the way that we were kind of taught to know it. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was definitely my, my introduction to anything like that. Now what's interesting is that when I first became aware of thrice, and I'm someone who was more familiar than most with sort of the the so-called general market secular scene and the Christian music scene. And I didn't encounter Thrice as a band that had any ties to the Christian music scene at all. I just mm -hmm. thought of it as an Orange County metalcore band that kind of came up, you know, in, in the same scene as Atreyu and 18 Visions and some of those bands and, and a band that was technically proficient and in a scene where there's a lot of lead singers unencumbered by an instrument that are running around on stage and 
you know, crowd surfing, that this was more of a musician-y kind of quicksandish, like the singer plays guitar and nowhere in that sort of milieu of these different notions that I had about the band as I was becoming more and more familiar with you guys. I couldn't even tell you when the Christian angle entered into the equation. And I, I just find that interesting because I think there are some folks where the perception is and was always, oh, thrice, they're a Christian band. What was your take on that as it was developing and, and, and happening? And, and what sort of role did Faith play in kind of the early identity of the band? Um, yeah, I'd say Faith didn't play a role in the band so much as it just did in you know my life and then what I ended up writing about um, but we actively tried to stay away from any Christian circuit type stuff um, especially because they're and not that there weren't great bands um, that were in that kind of thing but there's a lot of terrible bands and a mm -hmm. lot of just, uh, you know, this vibe of uh, this is the Christian version of this band. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a knockoff. And um, so we didn't want anything to do with that. And, um, you know, back in the day, uh, well, at no point was everyone in the band ever a Christian. And, uh, I might be the only one who would identify as that now, even though uh, there's many Christians eager to not have me claim that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it was never like a uh, a part of the identity of the band. It just, um, you know, I was wrestling with the big issues like I always have and doing it, you know, I think trying to be honest about it, but also write complex and layered songs that, anyone could you know get something from and, and approach from their own angle um and yeah so you mean you can trace a lot of things through the different records um and kind of get an idea of like where i was at at the time and what had i'd been going through uh, and my you know view on life through the lens of faith was part of that yeah it, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes about music and faith, which is from Bono of all people, where he talked about how the best music is either running away from the light or running toward it. And what both have in common is that they recognize that God or some notion of a higher power is at the center of it. Like that's the pivot point, you know? Mm. And I found that to be a truism for me in terms of what I'm, attracted to and, and even a lot of the conversations that i've had on this podcast are all sorts of different places on the spectrum of belief or unbelief and the art that comes from struggling with those questions and whether it's a certainty on one side or the other or anywhere in between i, I find that that creates a lot of the most compelling stuff as opposed to you know music that's about more mundane things or art that's coming from more of a pedestrian perspective, whether that's cinema, literature, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. has, has that been similar for you in terms of what you've been attracted to? In terms of, you know, what you listen to and watch and consume? Yeah, I don't know if I would... I, I get what he's saying in that quote for sure. Um, and I, I would say I think a lot of the especially maybe like in 
film, like a lot of things that are, you know, running away from the light type stuff, like that's not the, the purpose is not to like inspire you to do that. It is, but it's, it's commenting on, you know, what that looks like, what that feels like in the human condition. And, uh, yeah, so I, I've, I've always been compelled by anything that's, you know, kind of higher stakes in some sense that it's grappling with the bigger issues of whatever life is, you know, and, um, yeah, I, I definitely am, am more compelled toward, towards things on that kind of angle. And to your point about, yeah, there was definitely a time when the Christian music scene was all about, oh, you know, you're, you're quote unquote, not allowed to, to listen to this band or that band. Here are some watered down alternatives. You know, here's the Diet Coke version of the Ramones or Blink-182 or Slayer. And, you know, there were certainly some bands that broke away from that and were able to establish an artistic or aesthetic identity for themselves beyond those constraints. But by and large, that was a big problem for a long time. And to your point also about the different people within Thrice and where everyone kind of stands in terms of theology, spirituality, there are certainly bands who continue up to this present moment to perform at Christian festivals and, you know, sort of take the check, so to speak, from that world, despite having few, if any, believers, quote unquote, uh, in their band. And I always respected that Thrice never took the, your personal faith as a marketing hook, you know, that it was never part of, you weren't playing into that as a way to, you know, endear yourself to a certain scene. By the same turn, you know, you hear a lot from people outside of that circle oh well that band's just popular because they're christian or they're able to just tap into this christian thing and it's a double-edged sword because that certainly has turned off people <laughs> to a lot of bands yeah. just as much as it's turned people on so uh, at the end of the day i think what's most frustrating about it is that christian music is the only genre that's defined by its viewpoints rather than its music you know, you go into a record store and it's like, here's jazz, here's metal, here's punk, here's pop, here's dance, mm. here's Christian. And it's like suddenly you have any style of music that's just identified by that philosophy and, you know, ghettoized into this corner of the record store because. Yeah, of I know. Well, I think what's interesting about that is. Well, it says a lot about a lot of things, but one of the things is that it's a commentary on the insular nature of a lot of Christianity in the West at this point and that it's, you know, building its own cultural ghetto and not leaving that. And, um, that creates a built in market for a lot of people to take advantage of. Um, so that's a bummer, but it's also, uh, like, take Bono for example uh, as weird as Bono is um, and kind of douchey seeming he's also got a really a lot of really cool takes on some, some things um, mm -hmm. and clearly they've made some uh, amazing music and 
he has always talked about and you know incorporated faith into the way he writes in a way that is compelling because it isn't separated from everything it is exactly immersed into everything else that that is and if you're going to have a faith worth talking about it's going to be a faith that interacts with everything in a very real way um and um uh, maybe it should mirror the uh like literary uh genres of of like the tradition you're in so there's gonna be some stuff that sounds more like the psalms and it's got lament and doubt and all this mm. stuff in it and um so it's weird that you've got a band that's i mean that, I, there's plenty of examples of this but they're a good one because they're so big that you could take some of that stuff and totally have it work in just a you know christian band context but they're one of the biggest bands in the world and very popular with a bunch of people who wouldn't be you know believe the same things and whatever and you see that that's possible. You see that it's magnetic to some extent and um, it just makes that whole subgenre and industry look very pale in comparison. Indeed. And I think and we could get into this and I don't want to drive us into a ditch with it because I think it's probably a boring and negative conversation for both of us. But just to wander into it for a second, you have a lot of devout kind of fundamentalist evangelicals who don't accept Bono or you two as believers anyway. You know, I remember mm -hmm. even uh, 10, 15 years ago hearing that Bono had delivered some kind of message via satellite to the Cornerstone Festival and the crowd's like rolling its eyes because he misspoke and misquoted, you know, cited one scripture when he meant to cite another scripture, you know, and so you have this mm -hmm. huge audience of Christian kids going like, ah, oh, it's phony. And yeah, and I think Bono's an example of somebody that when you've lived that long in the public eye and created that much art and worked that hard for charitable causes, you're going to stumble publicly and make oh, yeah. make art that is lame and, you know, force a free album on people and upset everyone <laughs> and, you know, do some douchey things. But, you know, by the same turn, working within the system, I mean, he was able to get, you know, you have a big swath on Twitter that doesn't think Ellen should sit next to George W. Bush at a baseball mm -hmm. game, but then you have Bono getting George W. Bush to contribute more towards AIDS relief and research in Africa than I think any presidential administration prior and certainly more than most Republicans would normally be want to do. So there's some give and take on, on all sides of that. But and, and I say this knowing that you've experienced a little bit of the, the, the brunt of uh, – loudmouths on Twitter that think you're not this enough or that enough. And I, for one, have been very inspired and supportive of you working some things out and asking questions very publicly and having that discourse despite the backlash. And as much as we could talk about the backlash from that, what I would rather talk about is how you've maybe been inspired by it or what the, the positive side of that has been because we can look at your Twitter feed and see people being mad at you. But what's been great about this kind of more public open-ended discussion that you've been having with, with fans and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I think in the end, that's part of, part of why I started the podcast too, was 
to move a little bit of the conversation outside of the uh, tiny format of Twitter. I love Twitter for a lot of reasons, but it definitely has its weaknesses and having like a rounded out view of something is not its strong point. So I figured people would be able to hear me kind of talk more long form and informally with a variety of people would be helpful to, I think understanding where I've come to hover. I don't know if land is a good word. Um, and uh, uh, rather than just, you know, little snippets about what I don't think or whatever. Um, but I think it was helpful in being open about that stuff in the public eye to an extent is that it. I think it lets people in on a journey rather than all of a sudden being struck by um an endpoint and feeling totally disconnected from that. And I know that that's been helpful for a lot of people to, because a lot of people are having the same questions and thoughts that I was wrestling with. And so I think it's helpful to see that happening in, in, um, and try to model, you know, talking through that with people in, in a way that's helpful uh, as much as uh, I feel at that sometimes. But I'm a fan of uh, apologizing on Twitter, which you don't see a lot of, but like getting kind of called out on something and man, you're right, man. Totally, totally not modeling what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, imagine reevaluating your position on something and being open to new information. What a crazy concept. (laughs) Yeah. So that, I mean, yeah, we need more of that than almost anything, I think. Uh, And so I try to model that when I can. And, um, and I think it was it's been good for me, especially because you don't I don't know, like sometimes you're not around anyone who thinks the way you're thinking or feels the way you're feeling, and we have access to some tools where we can connect with people even though it's in you know smaller ways, but you do start to sense some form of community beyond just the the people that you know in real life so um yeah, that's been cool too. One of our mutual friends is Nick Bogardis, who I first met as manager for Thrice. And I would say a number of years ago at this point, and time flies, he left the music business altogether for ministry. Mm-hmm. And so keeping track of, of, of both of you to an extent and, and, you know, being friends that don't really get to see each other that often in real life uh, prior to the pandemic. I wasn't surprised when he was planting a church in Orange County. And then I I wasn't that surprised or or maybe less surprised than most when you were the worship leader at that church. Mm -hmm. And it it seemed like a really kind of natural, organic progression of of where both of you were in life and and the friendship that I think the two of you had. Um, Tell me a little bit about that relationship with him and, and where that's, how that's impacted your belief system and, and your your own identity, I suppose, with this sort of stuff and, and, and where you were at at that time when you accepted that leadership position, for, for lack of a better term, as, as a worship leader at, at a church and what kind of led into that? Yeah, um, okay. 
Yeah, so I've known Nick for a super long time, um, since the very early days of Thrice. And um, so we went through a lot together there, and then um, he ended up planning a church with uh, a like larger church called Mars Hill, which ended up becoming a big dramatic thing that I was uh, a part of. Uh, trying to fix and then destroy and all sorts of things and uh but this was kind of early on in my interaction with that and he was planning a church and i had been feeling like like i don't i really have never liked worship music and so i would be really bothered being in church and just being like oh man <laughs> these these songs suck in so many different ways and then i, I kind of had this feeling of like hey why are you just complaining about this instead of doing something better i was like oh that's interesting uh so that had already been kind of on my radar and then a bunch of other events kind of just conspired to uh, make that seem like this is what i'm supposed to do um so yeah that led into that and then um he ended up leaving that church before it all went um kaput and planting his own and we stayed you know in touch since then we don't see each other a ton but and we don't really agree on almost anything anymore <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah but we're still buds and uh i don't know it's it's good to be able to talk to someone who you really disagree with and still uh care about and i don't know it's it's frustrating at times because you realize um the lens that you are looking out into the world through is sometimes so different from someone else's that there's a lot of things that you almost can't make any kind of progress about how you think about them together um there's just the problem is way, way more fundamental than the area where you can talk about it. And so, um, yeah, I think realizing that is helpful and, you know, you can try and then be like, eh, oh, well. <laughs> we're not, this isn't going anywhere. Uh, that's okay. Um, but I think if you can realize that that's, that's what's happening, it's not just that, I don't know, you don't have to be frustrated that they're not seeing your point like your point oftentimes will just be unintelligible to someone who's not seeing it through that lens that you are and i and i know looking back you know i'll be talking to someone on my podcast and be like totally man that's awesome also i'm realizing there's probably a lot of people who the thing you just said it just just sounds like absolute nonsense mm -hmm. and um i would have been one of those people a little while ago and um yeah so that's that stuff's really weird just uh but it, i think it's helpful to have kind of transition points in your life where you are able to kind of see from the outside a little like meta like the lens that you were using mm -hmm. and you're always going to be a bit blind to the one that you're using right now but um it gives you a little bit of a check on yeah this is it you know like you this is how I see it now, I guess. And it seems good. And it seems like a progression, <laughs> a good, 
a good way from from where I was looking. But um, yeah, I think it gives you a great vantage point and a unique role to play in the lives of some folks who may you know be viewing things in a way that you used to. Mm-hmm. That you can have a commonality with, where you can you can understand. You know, you speak the language that they speak, even if you're not aligned. You know what I'm saying? Like you can you can. Yeah, sort of definitely. And I, well, I think I do still like as much as I don't believe like in a lot of the same things in the same way that I did growing up. Like the framework of like my thought and my patterns of thought and my you know just my being is and going back to what you just said of like language like that's all like that's not leaving for me um i've heard david bazan talk about that a little bit too where like it doesn't matter if i don't believe in god like i I'd still like <laughs> this is you know like I'm I'm still almost like just Christian, even as I as I try to pull away from it. You know, like uh, it's it's the orientation of like how everything is kind of gone for me. So, um, I find it. I think it's worth while to be a part of a like try to bridge a broader community with that kind of language. Um, rather than to just bail out on it, just because I realize how many things I don't agree on with a lot of those people. Um, I feel like a continuity is is still there and it's still helpful um, for dialogue. And if you look back at the history history of the tradition, um, you will actually see that that's the way it's always been. Like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a monolith of thought. Like, it never has been. It's always been a conversation. It's always been an argument. And that's okay. And, and, and I would say it should be. <laughs> yes. And there's a lot more where absolutely I'm at because, these days. Yeah. because to not let it be a living, breathing thing means that it's dead, right? It means it's a, a dead thing that cannot respond to the current reality. And that's what you see with a lot of. Uh, Christianity and any kind of fundamentalist type mindset is you you put all this energy into a dead thing and you become disconnected from the life that is actually in front of you um, and the world that's in front of you and I, I think that that is um, not a helpful thing for you or for anyone else so uh, I think having that perspective of seeing like the only way this thing keeps going and has any value is, is because it's a living changing thing that responds to uh, itself and to the world around it. And what's sort of hilarious when you take a step back from it is, you know, this specific faith tradition, the Christian faith tradition originates from disruption and conversation and argument and Mm -hmm. uh, heretical beliefs uh, in terms of what the status quo was around them. And I think that there's this, uh, the mindset in a lot of evangelicism is that this is an ancient faith that is immutable and perfect. And any attempt to maneuver within that is bending to the evils of 
modern culture. And I think that gets back to what you were saying about where sometimes it is, it's really difficult to find a meeting point to even have the conversation when those are the two things that are butting up against one another, this idea that you can't change because changing is, is compromising. And then this other idea that's like, this thing has always been changed. It's always been mm -hmm. evolving and, and moving. And uh, for me, I, I, you know, I find, and by the way, I want to say something before the thought escapes me, but when you were talking about becoming a worship leader, I think that that's very fundamental to a lot of great art in general is when you see a need and you decide to fill it, you know, where it's like, I want to mm -hmm. write, I want to write the kind of songs I, I want to hear. I want to start the kind of band I would like to go see. I want to make the movie that I want to watch. I want to start the podcast I would listen to. You know, I think that's where a lot of great stuff comes from is, is when you're sitting around going, man, nobody's making the thing that I want to make that I, that I wish existed. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose I should make it, but anyway, there's a, a little bit of a tangent, but uh, you know, I find that much as you've probably encountered in your career being too Christian for some people and not Christian enough for other people, you know, I find, I've, I've got a couple of group chats going with different sets of close friends from different periods of my life. And in one of those main group chats, I'm the liberal. And in the other main group chat, I'm the conservative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, I, and I find that, you know, existing in those margins is uncomfortable as it, as it can be. It's sort of where I thrive because I appreciate getting those perspectives from diverse groups of people and as much as we like to think we form our own opinions, I like really trying to get some sort of balance out of all the different sides. And, you know, to some people that's wishy-washy, but to me that's what I've learned is that the, the years I spent in search of certainty and of having, you know, a list of bullet points, like these are my beliefs and, and having a rigid foundation in that, that was the death of faith for me was certainty and yeah, now and now it is it is the opposite of faith right it really is and now now living in the uncertainty and living in the in the questions and having some core um perspectives from which i approach this stuff you know is is one thing uh and, and considering myself a believer and trying to work and explore within the Christian framework is that's admittedly the one that's more comfortable for me as it comes kind of full circle. It really is the uncertainty and the big questions that are more inspiring to me and more the place that I want to live in. And I think the hardest work, the hard, the hardest thing is to wrap my head around this, this theology. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the work of Peter Rollins is probably my, mm -hmm. my favorite theologian and just even wrapping my head around half the stuff he writes about and talks about, you know, that's just like, you know, the answer is in the question and the, the, the destination is in the journey and, and that sort of stuff. That's where I feel most inspired. And that's where I, my podcast and your podcast certainly intersect, I think, in that we're both looking to have conversations that push that forward um, for us and learning from other people and where they're at and how that can inform our, our whole process. I want to dive in with you a little bit only because I've never had the opportunity off the record or otherwise, not so much, a, you know, if people want to read about the story of Mars Hill and, and the dissolution of that and, and kind of the cult of personality that was in play there. There's plenty of stuff out there. I could even put links in the show notes. I would be more interested in you as a human being, how, what happened with Mars Hill affected your 
life and viewpoints and and the work that you're doing now and kind of who you are now with this stuff um having a front row seat to what what can be great about the modern church and what can be terrible about it really really curious how that shaped you yeah um a lot of people well that sounded really weird when i said the <laughs> good accent um a lot of people uh usually those who i think disagree with the places that i've gone um they are quick to kind of try to tie the trauma of what went down there to my beliefs changing. Um, but there, there's just no straight line between those things. I was like back down in California. I was at a church that we were really liking and feeling, uh, kind of healing at and, um, similar theology of a, a church let like not as toxic <laughs> um still toxic uh i found out but uh not as <laughs> as toxic but uh it i i basically my belief shifted because i was able i had the freedom the space and time to readdress some issues that i had had on the back burner for you know 15 years or something mostly uh dealing with uh, inerrancy. My belief shifting was not connected to what went down in Mars Hill. Um, I learned a lot uh, out of that thing. And I, the biggest, I'd say the biggest lesson I took away was, um, I guess broadly, there are good teachings or good instincts or good um, ways to live that people can exploit uh, for their benefit and your detriment, uh, for their power. And that's not exclusive to uh, churches. I think it's happening in our country a lot at the moment. Um, but my experience with it, I feel like gives me some understanding of some of what's happening at large right now. Um, there's some similarities, but, uh, so those things for me would be like, um, I was, you know, it, it really taught this idea of having grace, which I think is great. Um, so having grace for people, forgiveness, understanding of, um, that everybody's flawed, everyone has their problems. And so that, grace was weaponized at that church specifically in the way that you learned to apply that to a leader who was very talented uh, but very toxically unhealthy and um, displaying patterns of leadership and speech uh, and behavior that should not have been tolerated but we're tolerated in this umbrella of grace. Mm. Um, and so from the, before I went there, I, I knew that there were issues. I didn't know uh, how bad and how broad they were, but I was like, yeah, this, this thing sucks, but 
what about all these cool things? What about this? And I shouldn't I have grace? And um, so, I mean, a lot of the very best people I've ever known worked at the church at the time and were very talented, very caring, um, good, good people. Um, and so on the ground, there was a lot of good stuff going on and everybody learned to kind of have this, oh yeah, this, this happened here and this, whatever, but you know, we got to have grace for that. Um, so I think that, um, was one of the things. Another one is, um, I think, and this had been kind of the groundwork laid for this, not, uh, purposefully, but just the idea of a calling, um, in Christian circles, at least the ones that I grew up in, I think is ends up getting translated to where you feel like the hardest option being put in front of you is the thing you're being called to sometimes. And I, I just think that that's not true at all. Um, I think that that skewed some of our decisions in agreeing to do, you know, agreeing to move, stuff like that. I was like, well, you know, it, it seems hard and crazy, but I, you know, you, there's this part of you that's been trained to be like, all right, but I, I think that's what I'm being called to, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful. I'm going to, um, respond to that. Um, and so I think, I think both those things, that idea of calling and, and of giving grace were tainted and kind of weaponized, uh, against me and a lot of people. Um, and that's a systemic thing too. It's not just a, I mean, I think that some of it was done, um, more maliciously or, um, at least purposefully, but, but it's also just built into the system. And so like anything systemic, it's not one person that has to make this, you know, pull the switch to make that happen. It's just everything's on a track at that point and that's the way it goes. And so it's self-perpetuating. I never thought about it in terms of grace, which is really interesting given that from my outsider's perspective, a lot of what was wrong with the Mars Hill theology was an authoritarianism, an idea of inerrancy. Uh, I think there were members of the church who took the worst parts of that example of the leadership there and, and carried it out into the world with them. You know, this, this certainty and this, this mm. almost gang mentality that having a lens with which to view anything and everything in the world and feeling so confident in it. It's the dichotomy there when grace is so the opposite of that, the idea that grace was being exploited to empower that is really interesting. I never yeah. really thought about it that way. Yeah. And what you're, I mean, what you're talking about is that, that idea of, I mean, essentially a lot of what was happening and I think is happening at large right now is that we, uh, I think, however you'd like to look at it, I, I mean, I'm viewing it through kind of an evolutionary lens, but we're, we're wired to be very, very, very social creatures, far more than any other uh, animal on the planet. And we, for, you know, thousands and thousands of years lived in these kind of tribal units, uh, and there's such a huge part of us that just wants that belonging, right? I want to feel like 
these are my people and um that's that's a strong strong pull and so um if you're not careful it also creates a lot of negative side effects uh when you have to interact with uh the rest of the world it's not so mm-hmm. bad if you're out in you know the savannah and you kind of steer clear of other groups of people and you have your people and great and um, but yeah, now we're all on top of each other and interconnected in every way. Um, but you are part of a group that's disconnecting you. Um, so that can, that can be hard, but it's very understandable why it's attractive. Mm. Um, it plays out so, in politics and religion yeah, and yeah. all sorts so of places. It, yeah. yeah. So it, it, it plays out all over the place. And, um, I think you see a lot of the uglier effects of it kind of playing out, uh, at large right now and making it to one of those places where it's like you look across and you're like, how, how are you seeing what you're seeing? You know, like, I, like I can, for instance, like I can understand someone making the bargain back in 2016. I don't agree with it, but like making the bargain to, to go with Trump. And I mean this in like, for like evangelicals or something where it's mm-hmm. like someone who clearly is not in your camp, doesn't understand the things or care about the things that you do, but he's, he's clearly like trying to ride, you know, your wave and be, so you can see that he's, he is not of you. Like it's just a totally different animal, but he's promising to do some of the things that you want him to do. Right. Um, so I can see someone taking the bargain, uh, even though I, I think it would, it's not right. But I can see them being like, well, he's going to pack the court and he's going to do that, whatever you wanted. What I cannot, like, I can't get it is how someone can look at him now, like, after we've been living in this state of being, and now say, I think he's a good man. I think he is smart. I think he is, I, like... Like, are you not watching the same thing I'm watching? And that's, that's the weirdness of being a human is like, you literally are looking through a weird lens at all points of time. And your, your brain is filtering information into you and you're literally seeing the the reality differently. And that's Mm -hmm. terrifying and strange. So much confirmation bias too, right? Where, Mm -hmm. well, I've decided my narrative is that the last guy was the antichrist and this guy is anointed. So I will contort any information that comes my way to support both of those ideas. But it's, but it's happening subconsciously, which is really intense um, and hard to address. So that's what I don't like. It's just a good example of me being like people I know and love just being like, how, how do you think he is not just a terrible shyster and, doesn't care about anything but himself like i don't know it's really really weird and i i say that with no i'm 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 not hating on people who who's are coming at that from a different angle i am just absolutely confused by it and i i can see the reason why the disconnect is there but it still just trips me out i took a screenshot once when the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman story was fresh in the news and was unfolding in front of all of us. It had just happened. I screenshot once the Huffington Post and the Daily Caller 
on the same day, each of their top stories were about Trayvon Martin's killing. And in the Huffington Post, it was a side-by-side photo of Zimmerman and Trayvon. The photo of Trayvon was a couple years old, so he was much younger. He had a big smile on his face. It was like a school mm-hmm. picture or something. And the picture of Zimmerman was like a mug shot. You know, he had the he was all beat up from the scuffle and and I think he was wearing like his you know, the county orange or whatever. He's he's kind of grimacing, scowling, stone facing the camera. And then over on the Daily Caller, at the exact same moment, they had a photo of Trayvon looking menacing. I think he might have even had a shirt off. And a picture of Zimmerman that was like a professional, like probably from some job he had where he has a tie mm-hmm. and he's smiling. And it was like, this is America, <laughs> yeah. you know, like this is uh, subconsciously, you know, something happens. How does my team view it? What's our stance on it? What do we, you yeah. know, all of our predetermined and there's build, there's ideas. builds and responses, yeah, to, to when those things happen. Uh what what the reality is i have an interesting take on the evangelical side of everything in that you know it's the the blessing and the curse of the early adopter i suppose (laughs) i remember in 2007 um when the sundance channel started airing uh one punk under god which was a reality show about jay baker the son of jim and tammy Okay. Uh, who's become a, a close friend of mine since, but that was around the time that I first got acquainted with him. And I remembered a lot of evangelicals that I knew at the time were very excited, like, oh, the punk rock pastor, he's going to be on TV, and you know, he's got full sleeve tattoos, and he's into Johnny Cash and Social D. And and when it got to the episode where he came out is, is what they call in the Christian bubble uh, gay affirming mm-hmm. and, and declared that he didn't feel that homosexuality was a sin, and so on and so forth, you know, and, uh, he's a heretic and he's leading people to hell and this is bad theology. And, you know, we thought we supported this guy. We don't. And around that time, as I got to know Jay better, he, he spent the next year or so meeting with a lot of major leaders in the evangelical movement. None of them were willing to come along with him, so to speak regardless of what they may or may not have personally felt behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, he, the revolution church his, his church had like a staff of 18. They had to lay everyone off. Some people left. Um, everything was being funded by this like construction magnet in Georgia who was uh, coming from the Baptist perspective, pulled all of his funding over this one mm-hmm. shift in theology and so it's a little bittersweet to watch culture. Of course, you want culture to catch up and Christian yeah. culture and otherwise. But it, is, it has been a little bittersweet, I think, for, for folks like Jay and I who were, quote unquote, early on some of these issues to then watch certain folks come along at a time when it, it frankly, was easier to do so, you know, or, yeah. or people that were able to make these career shifts, so to speak, and be, you know, speakers and authors and, and doing great work. But it's like, man, where, where were you when it was harder? <laughs> you know, so yeah. it, it's a, it's rough and everyone kind of moves at their own pace and, and arrives at things when they arrive at them. But, um, I definitely still have a little residual discomfort from just speaking purely for myself of, of really feeling ostracized and alienated 
overviews that I had at a time that were so far outside the Christian orthodoxy. I mean, gosh, I mean, even when Love Wins came out, you know, and, and challenging the idea of a literal hell. Mm -hmm. I'm very Christian bubble right now. There's an apology to listeners who are not in the Christian bubble. But I was thinking like, yeah, isn't it a given that we question the idea of a literal hell? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm there, man. I'm not, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back either because it certainly, I wasn't that outspoken about certain things because it risked relationships and, you know, there were difficult conversations to have. But as much as I'm happy and inspired to see these conversations happening more openly now, there is that, that I don't even know how to describe it or if, I'm, if it's even yeah, worth I mean, going I, into. I get what you're saying. I I think it's it's hard because, and this applies to a lot of things, but you really are on your own journey. Like you can't you can't shortcut someone else's journey, you know. And and so many things have led to the place where you know you got to that point when you did, and it doesn't take away all you know, moral responsibility, uh, of you choosing that, but it's not, you know, it's not disconnected from everything else. It's not like, uh, you're just like, well, you get a, you know, if we could evaluate what views that were actually correct or whatever, but like, and you did it, you, you chose the, the thing. Um, it's like some people, their journey to that place, if they ever get there is so much more secure, circuitous and, um, that's the only, that was the only way to get there. Yeah. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, I uh, do, I do. And I feel even, you know, awful even bringing it up that I have any resentments about that. Cause that's my own stuff to work yeah, but through. That's, but that's, those are valid, valid feelings and valid emotions about the hardship that you went through at that time dealing with that, you know? So, um, but it's hard. I, I think it's a good thing to remember that, that idea of, I don't know. I think there's ways where the journey uh, metaphor breaks down. Uh, Alan Watts has some stuff about that. But I think in this kind of situation, like thinking about a journey to get to certain thoughts or ideas, or I think that is really helpful in realizing, you know, you had your journey. You can't, you can try to show people some of the, like the waypoints on that journey and maybe they can take some of the same roads but they're never going to walk the exact same path. And so it's going to take them yeah. different amounts of time. You know, there's going to be, there's always going to be people who are, if you're looking at it as a linear journey, which I think probably neither of us even do at this point, as you, as you said with the Alan Watts thing, but to look at it in that framework for a second, there's people who are going to be way further along than you and I are, who are probably, you know, who might listen to a conversation like this one and be like, ah, oh, when are these guys going to catch up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's important. Like you said, you did, you're, you're blind to, your own prism at any given time. So I'm sure even the way we look at things now, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll arrive at a place where someday we'll look back on now and be like, huh, I was so unevolved then. I've, I understand so much more now, which, which again is, is kind of falling into that trap of hoping to arrive at some, some place of certainty and agreed upon facts in a, in a set of concepts that, that are about faith and that they're intrinsically not tied to any facts <laughs> that can be proven in a scientific way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what makes it fun. That's where I'm, that's where I'm having a more, <laughs> I, I feel like I have a more positive attitude towards this stuff as much as I just grumbled to you a little bit 
than I've ever had, you know, because I, I, it's more exciting to me. It's more interesting to me. I'm, I'm so much more open to hearing what other people have to say and, and, and coming a little bit full circle in the sense that there was a time where I was, I felt immovable in my own views on things, right? And was like, mm -hmm. could listen to others, but still was like, I'm not going to come away changed by any conversation. And then there was a point where I was really a sponge and soaking up what everyone else had to say. And I feel like now I'm in a little more place of balance where it's like, okay, I have a little bit of a handle on, on what I believe and where that might lead, but can also take in a lot of new information without fear of, I guess just without fear period, but without fear of, of being too shaken or, or feeling like I'm too rigid. I don't know. It's like, I feel I, I, I'm happier delving into this stuff nowadays than I've ever been because I, I, I'm not worried about being, you know, knocked off my philosophical rocker and I'm not worried about being too immovable. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it, it's, it's sure. much more comfortable. I get the sense from reading your work and following you on Twitter and hearing your podcast that you're in a bit of a similar place where you're, you seem to be enjoying the exploration and the taking in of new ideas without totally losing who you are. And there's a, it's such a balance. It's about, it's balance every day. There's a place in, I think, you know, our development along some kind of path that when you see people talking like the way you were just talking and this idea of being open to, more possibilities and whatever. It's just when you see it from a certain point in that, that, uh, ride the journey, whatever it, it seems unintelligible and it seems like, like that person has lost it. They mm -hmm. went off the deep end. Mm -hmm. There's no way that you can make meaning from that point. There's no way you can make moral distinctions. There's no way you can, uh, because it's just, it's coming at it from such a different angle and, uh, rather than having a system of here's the bedrock certainty, and then we build our smaller certainties on top over and over and over. Uh, it's more of a place of being open to the shifting relationships between everything and seeing how they intersect. And it's not clean cut all the time, but it's not pure chaos either um and it allows for um a life of less abstraction in the sense that i think a lot of the rigidity um in certain views leads to uh, abstracting the very life that you're living to where you kind of miss um you miss the thing right in front of you because you you're like i know what that is Right. And I think the more you progress in a certain sense, you start to realize, I don't, I don't know what that is. It's cool. It's beautiful. Maybe it's, seems good or true, but like, I don't, I, I, as I've grown, I realize I know less and less what about what it actually is. And, and I am now experiencing it rather than abstracting it. Um, and what I just said, I'm sure just seemed like nonsense to a lot of people too. So it's proving my point. I, I do want to, revisit something you said a long time ago uh, you use the word inerrancy mm -hmm. um let's talk about that 
because that's okay. a fascinating concept and it's something that is so in a lot of faith traditions you know taking us outside of the quote-unquote christian bubble uh you know i have friends who are muslim where inerrancy is a big part of their faith tradition that you know the quran was delivered as this it makes more sense in their tradition than it does in <laughs> yeah, Christian right? tradition for sure because <laughs> they're at it's least much, saying much hey, more plausible an angel said this to one guy and then yeah. one guy told it to other people yeah it is much like, more possible okay well um <laughs> uh yeah but uh but yeah, yeah whether, whether or not you believe it it, it, it at least the, the argument holds more water i think um i agree yeah, the so what I essentially the way that inerrancy I think has been wielded in uh especially kind of Western evangelicalism, um especially American evangelicalism, uh is very much about power. Um uh, it's about having this and i don't again mean that in like everyone who is employing it is maliciously thinking about having power it's it's larger than that like it the system itself begins to uh sense its own reliance on right like it it undergirds so much of what the modern church is where you start with this idea that all right all these different books together uh they are our canon now and then and this always bothered me even though i accepted it for a long time but i it weirded me out it's like okay i understand how we got the canon you know we had these councils and everyone's like here's the criteria and here's the reasoning cool all right we have a canon disney now. bought lucasfilm and we moved all <laughs> the dark horse comics out of it and now it's yeah. the oh sorry go on. um <laughs> So, you know, everyone decided these are the books, right? These are our criteria. And then what I never understood was how then it's like, it's almost like you put these pieces of puzzle together and all of a sudden the puzzle glowed and rose off the table. And it's like, now it's magical. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought that we were just saying, these are all our pieces. Uh, it's like, no, no, no. Now the whole thing is magical together. And it always has been. And, um, and I, and I, I say that somewhat pejoratively, like in the sense of like that I just don't, once I got outside that view, I, I can't understand anymore like how, well, I can, but it seems so odd to look at it and be like, wait, why, why were we talking about it like this? Like if you can step back a bit, you see, it's just, this is a, and all the scholarship will point to this. This is a collection of writings changed and morphed over time. Um, both in the Christian and uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And that stuff is fascinating, especially as you go back in the Hebrew scriptures and see like scholars can basically piece out different voices of different communities over time. And the way that scribes basically incorporated these different voices into one text, which is fascinating because it, it gets back to this idea that um, the Jewish community and faith has, has embraced much better is this idea of like we're all family even when we disagree hmm. um and we are family in our arguments and our conversations and that's a part of what we do so you see that in the talmud where you know you have the scripture and then you have you know rabbi this says this rabbi this says this and it doesn't say and this is the one 
it's like they let the interpretations live side by side mm. in the argument and the conversation and the living thing continues forward. Um, and so I think that's really fascinating, but that's not at all how I was taught to look at, at scripture. I was taught that it's all, you know, verbal plenary inspiration is the term. And that means that every single word was inspired to be written down like by God perfectly. And so, uh, that creates just a whole host of problems. Even and just the cause, differences in language, <laughs> how many different languages it gets into. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it causes you to, it, it creates a really interesting situation where humans are very, very good at pattern recognition. This is like mm. one of the things that has, uh, set us apart in our evolutionary history and what makes us good at a ton of things that we're good at. Um, it's why we see pictures of things in the clouds, you know? Yeah. It, it's great and it's really useful, but it also, uh, without checks can do things like you can look at an entire text of multiple books written over centuries and you can see the things that piece together to mm. make a narrative that is interesting to you. Um, and that can be really cool as long as it's not the narrative. Like if you can look through and see a thread going through, oh man, that's really cool. Like look at, look at this interesting thread that weaves through all these books and it's part yeah. of that big conversation, right? Or it's like, look at this thread. That's the thing. That is the actual. Yeah. Thread. That's how you the start to view thing. the entirety of the old Testament as just as a prequel to Christ. <laughs> that's how you're yeah, like, Oh, and, all of it, you know, yeah. that's the Hobbit. Here's the Lord of the Rings. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's pretty dismissive yeah. of a huge yeah, body of a diverse work. Lot of stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I think if you can step outside of that and, uh, I mean, here's, here would be my challenge. Like I've yet to talk to an inerrantist, uh, and I mean this literally, which is funny in this <laughs> equation, but the one that could give me an actual good answer to, but why do you think it's this way? And they'll say, Oh, well, it says, uh, all scriptures, God breathe or whatever, uh, whatever that answer is, it's very easily interpreted from a different point of view. Mm -hmm. like, oh, wait, that doesn't, that's not saying it's like what you're saying it is though. Like you, you're quoting things that were written before this canon was even put together. Right. So, who says that that canon is perfect? Who says that? Like, there's so many questions that, and the only thing you can go back to is saying, well, the Holy Spirit guided these church fathers to do this thing at one point in time. Uh, and I think that's really a dangerous answer to, to fall back on. Um, it's just, it's, it, it's saying it's so, it's basically saying it's so long ago that we can't, can't even think about messing with it now. But I, I think you can look back and see all the ways those early church fathers were disagreeing about so many different things. The fact that, uh, there was a council and something was decided by a majority, like that doesn't mean it's perfect. That mm -hmm. means that team won <laughs> that argument, right? Like that's, that's what that means. Um, you don't get to say that like this thing magically, the Holy spirit worked out and yet the rest of, church history is chaos, right? Like, yeah. History is written by the victors. And so is scripture apparently. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I so I basically, I, I don't, I don't think there's any good argument for it, but the 
problem is, and this ties into uh, the issue of hell as well, is the issue of hell is very much tied up with like the fear of hell and the inerrancy of scripture are, are uh, kind of two polar ends of the same thing. I don't know how to best describe this, but basically they're, they're in relationship to each other in especially the evangelical church where you are afraid to question a certain view of scripture because you are afraid of hell. And that view of hell is reinforced by a certain view of scripture and a certain interpretation of scripture that's built in to the communities in which you learned how to read that scripture. And so it just goes back and forth and round and round. And it's really hard to step outside of, uh, that thing it's like a dynamo it has its own uh energy at that point and i it's it's just super hard to step outside that the stakes are too high right you know i might go to hell if i if i be tortured forever by loving god right uh and uh that might happen to me if if i think about this in a different way uh and that's rough so i have all the sympathy for people who still are in that place. Uh, mm. But I am inviting you <laughs> beyond it because uh, it's, it is much better out here. And, and it's like, frankly, uh, the Bible is far more interesting uh, on the other side of that equation because yes. you can look at it and say, okay, here's four gospels. And I actually get to believe that they say different things mm-hmm. and I get to, piece together then wow why is this one saying this why is this one so focused on this and that's getting me i'd say closer to some idea of what actually was going on at the time than to say they're all saying the same thing even though my brain also knows that they are saying different <laughs> different things um written at different times by different people and even yeah, so yeah you get to actually play with those differences and be like oh that's that's fascinating or you know see I don't know. There's some really fascinating stuff in um, Old Testament stuff that I'd never known where like there's two different uh, flood stories basically that are uh, they're presented in the text like continuously, but you can piece them out uh, the pieces into like two full separate stories. Uh, But that's kind of going back to where it's like scribes were working these two different traditions together and being like, we're going to keep both. You Mm -hmm. know, we're not going to like overwrite this other way of thinking we're going to keep in the conversation um if any of this is interesting to anyone uh pete ends is who i'd recommend checking out um got a really good book called the bible tells me so um it's really helpful for me and if you feel like you're more stuck in that place of uh really really craving that certainty and being afraid to let go of that um he has a book called the sin of certainty which uh, goes a little bit more into his journey. He's a um, professor at a uh, reform kind of conservative school and uh, wrote a really good book and got kicked out for it, basically, um, called uh, Inerrancy and Inspiration. No, what was it called? Inspiration. Whatever it was. It's it's great, and it's crazy that he got kicked out for it. But it goes into a bit of like his journey into... like trying to think hard about this stuff and be faithful about it and where that, where that got him. And, um, so that's a bit of a more like a personal, his, his journey. But it, I, I think it's really, if you've come up in a conservative Christian background, 
he definitely gets it and is communicating from a place that you'll understand and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've felt those fears. I've felt those same things. And uh, so I think he's a kind of helpful guide on that journey. This brings to mind something that I think is a great summary for this chunk of Look the at me evangelizing still. <laughs> uh, here, here's, I think that what you speak to, it, it doesn't have to be a binary choice. When, when you talk about come out on this side, it's so much more freeing. It's so much, it's, it's liberating. It's not because what either of us is saying, we're not saying, hey, discard all of this because then you can just believe whatever you want and be loosey-goosey and do all the fun things you want to do in life. I think it's more about, it's not this binary choice of, okay, the Bible is a bunch of nonsense fairy tales that we can mock and laugh at and throw away versus this is the inerrant word of God that was written chapter by chapter in order by these prophets where God was like with his magic pen hovering over them. It doesn't have to be that either or. It can, yeah. And it's so much more exciting when it's messier, when you look at it and you go, okay, this is, you know, some of the most important writing in human history. What does it mean? What does it represent? How was it created? How was it chosen? What, where are these different places where, the, where it intersects and contradicts? And, you know, and let's dig into the language. You know, if you're looking at issues like eternal punishment and, the resurrection and immaculate conception and all these, all the magical thinking that goes on. Why don't well, let's, let's pick that apart. Let's reverse engineer it. Let's, let's understand it. That I think is, it's, it's thrilling that that's where it's so much. It's, it's more fun. It is a nicer place to be, to live in that messiness. And that isn't to say that you just go, well, it's all messy. No, like dig in, get your hands dirty. You know, I think yeah, that's, I think that's the fun that of it. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point to blow up the binary because I, I, I've started to see that almost any time there's uh, a binary presented to you, it's because something or someone is trying to retain power and mm. it's not – almost nothing works like that. Um, things are, are much more spectrum than they are binary. So uh, you can look at – you know, the inerrant view as the very far side of a spectrum, but there's so much in between. There's so many different ways to then uh, engage the text that, you know, if you're, you don't have to believe it's all nonsense to believe that it's not absolutely perfect in a certain right. sense. Uh, you don't right. have to believe that God isn't involved in inspiring uh, it in, in some way. And there's so many different interpretations and ways to, get at that and part of the fun thing is when you see that it's a spectrum a lot of the places on the spectrum can hang out together and yes and overlap like, yeah overlap and have fun and, and it's like it, it you don't just throw everything out because yeah. they don't it doesn't it doesn't mean because a lot of people who are coming from that that more conservative and i don't mean politically but i mean in the literal sense coming from that that point of view they just, they hear us talking and they go, oh, moral relativism. It's like, no, we're not saying moral relativism. Like, murder is wrong. Like, the, you know, they're like first principles. Like, there are things we can agree upon as a set, as a starting point. Stop forcing us into this binary choice of it's all ridiculous or it's all magical and perfect. Yeah. And it, it's so and, much and better to, to be able to muck around things out of like a, a relational 
lens. Like you, you don't have to have a, a disembodied hand writing on a tablet to get to the place of thinking murder is wrong. Like you can build that out of, uh, I, I, and I really build my moral code out of uh, like golden rule or what's called like the platinum rule too, where like doing others as you'd have them do unto you or, maybe a better way to put it is do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Like mm. taking into account why, how that person is different than you and what they might like instead. Um, I've never heard that. And you, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> if you do that, that, I mean, that can apply to like absolutely everything in your life. And I think will lead you into a really harmonious and beautiful way of living among other people without anyone like having to, tell you something specifically and it's not bad to tell someone <laughs> those things either but like if the only reason you're not killing is because you think that it's like this immutable thing I feel like you're missing something of like like I think it's written down to remind you of like what that is that that's important that that's someone's entire life that you could be taking away and that's not something you would want done to yourself. And like that should influence how you live in a community. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it can look really scary of like, Oh yeah, we're abandoning all the rules. You're really not. I think you come to a place of, of embodying them more than, um, mm -hmm. than being external to yourself. The, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And that mm -hmm. idea that, that if you, that it's a house of cards, that if you take, a certain fundamentalist view in any belief system a way that suddenly there's no morality or the idea that if you take miracles away from the story of Jesus, that it ceases to be a, a noteworthy story that we have any value. Those are binary choices that I don't, I don't accept. You know, my, my answer is I don't accept your question. <laughs> mm. You know, at this point I, I will say uh, to wrap us up, this is the first time in however many episodes of No Prize from God where it has been pertinent to explain the name of the podcast, which, believe it or not, has never come up. And it fits perfectly with, with what we're talking about, what, specifically what you were describing about the, the lens with which we view scripture and the how much broader it all becomes when you have these conflicting interpretations living with each other and intermingling. So I was having a Twitter conversation with a friend a few years ago and he was uh, teeing off for lack of a better term from a sort of militant atheist perspective on the various contradictions and conflicts in the story of the death of Judas in scripture and how, you know, here it says this, here it says that clearly these contradict. Therefore the Bible's all a joke, like that sort of going down that sort of path and then I'd swooped in and said, well, you know, this story is told in this way and says this, and this one is told in this way and says that, and, you know, kind of basic apologetics as people in the Christian bubble might understand it, where I was like, actually, these aren't in conflict at all. And because this is a person whose life has been just as shaped by Marvel comics as mine, <laughs> he responded, dude, you're trying to get a no prize from God, a no prize in Marvel comics parlance was something that Stan Lee came up with in the 60s. I think I'm pretty sure it was Stan Lee. Where when a writer when a when a reader would write in and point out a continuity error in the comic mm -hmm. books. Uh, you know, 
Uh, and this in Amazing Spider-Man number 14, Aunt May said that she used to be a waitress. But in Spectacular Spider-Man 32, she said that she used to own a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you point out the continuity error, but in pointing it out, you also solve it. And you say, well, she did own a restaurant and she also uh, waited tables in the restaurant that she owned. That's actually not in conflict at all. And they would print your letter and Stanley would say, congratulations, you've won a Marvel no prize. And the no prize, of course, <laughs> was nothing. And they would, I guess, sometimes even send an envelope with nothing in it. Uh, so, yeah, w- <laughs> when my friend said to me, dude, you're trying to get a no prize from God, I thought, man, that is such a beautiful way to summarize my life. <laughs> been try- I have That's been really trying funny. to get a no prize from God for most of my life. Um, and it sums up, you know, so many elements of pop culture and stuff that inspires me. So when this idea for this podcast came around, that seemed like the perfect name. That's funny. I had no idea about that, um, but that's a really, really good story. Well, thanks for making the time to do this. I'm glad we were able to finally get it going, and I, I consider it a personal victory that I was able to get you out of your uh, self-confessed shell. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you got going. You got going to the point where you went, whoa, I'm going, going a little too hard. I should back up. I'll take that uh, as a, take that as yeah, a win. Man. Yeah. You uh, you get a no prize for me. <laughs> I'll I'll look out for that. <laughs> um, I was gonna say, uh, have you ever listened to Trip Fuller's podcast? I feel like you would dig it. I have. Okay. Uh, you would like it a lot. It's called Homebrewed Christianity. I've heard of that. Okay. Uh, he's buddies with like Rollins and stuff. Like Rollins lived at his house for a while. Um. And yeah, he, I, you would, you would dig it. It's basically people all over the, it's kind of nerdy theological shit. And, uh, but he, he also is like a process thinker, which is kind of the realm that I dig a lot right now. Um, process. Yeah. Uh, I had never heard of it before you know, a couple of years ago and, uh, it's becoming, more known now um, is that any relation to the process church or is that something different oh um i don't know what the process church process is. church was a, a a cult but i mean you know he's the term loosely i'd say it probably has no relation are you familiar with the band integrity uh yes it's where a lot of their stuff is drawn from the idea of the the lamb and the goat are fused as one and humanity is the devil and all those integrity album titles, it's all process church stuff. Interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I tried to, uh, I, I had to wit on the podcast and I tried to get him to deep dive on some of that stuff, but he's, uh, it was a great episode and he's a very, very old friend. I've known him since we were teenagers, but, uh, he won't, he likes to keep a mystique about a lot of it. So he won't, <laughs> he won't go too far beyond the surface. Um, but anyway, you would, I think you would, Dig process stuff. Uh, it's basically like a a philosophical uh, framework, and then also that can lead into process theologies. Um, but it's I don't. I'm I'm no expert in it, but it's by far my kind of favorite way to think about things at the moment. Um, I will definitely die. Especially, especially like the, the process philosophy, like 
as a framework. Um, there's a book called, uh, I think it's just called Int Introduction to Process Thought. Here, I'm going to look it up. I'll send you a, a link, but it, Please. it's like a kind of a primer intro thing, and it's it's really well uh, written. And because I'll, it's, I'll order it today. You could listen to, to the episode I did with John Cobb, and we'll talk a bit about it. Um, Cobb is like, he just turned 95, and he's been like the most kind of important uh, process theologian. Um, so he talks about it a bit, but the part of the problem is the way like process sometimes called process relational thought and it's trying to reframe things and make sense of um like we don't actually live in a world of things but of processes um so like everything is always in motion everything is always relating um you know the table we think of it as here's the table it's a thing but we know from science now it's actually not a static thing moving through time. It is itself in process. All of the molecules in it are moving, however slowly. Um, and every single thing everywhere is related to everything else. And so it's really taking that kind of framework um, and trying to reframe how we think about things because it makes more sense with science. And uh, it creates a framework that can make sense of our some of our experiential um, uh, intuitions about free will, about uh, creativity, just different things. Um, so it, like one of the guy who formalized a lot of it in Western thought was a guy named Whitehead. And he was basically looking at saying, Hey, like our experience of free will is uh, it's like one of the only things that like, like our experience in general is the only thing we really have unfettered access to. And we also can't really live without feeling like we have some kind of free will. And so if you have a philosophy that denies that that has any reality, like it's a bit hard to make that a livable philosophy. Right. Um, anyway, there's a lot of things I like about it. Um, especially in the process theology stuff, it inverts, God's power uh, to be instead of the unmoved mover, it's the the most moved mover, the one who experiences mm. all of the pain and joy of all of reality. Like God is the uh, the one who is. It's it's kind of a panentheistic worldview where God is within everything and everything is within God. Um, that kind of answers the Ricky Gervais. Um, how do you explain? bone cancer in children you know like if it's if it's a god that's experiencing all the pain and joy simultaneously with us well and also so the way it relates to god's power is that god is uh non-coercive uh, because god is love and so uh it definitely it solves the odyssey by saying god is a working at all times like it, it describes god's power as like a, a a relational uh, influential alluring power so that god is is luring all of uh the world towards the good in every moment but does not coerce anything so hmm. god is luring the atoms god is luring you uh god's luring everything towards something in each moment but we have a limited range of ability to cho choose in that um and so there's a i mean there's a wide variety of ways to 
interpret this, but that the basic idea is like, yeah, God didn't stop your bone cancer because God couldn't. And uh, that sounds really weird at first, like that doesn't sound comforting, but in the end it actually is very comforting because mm-hmm. the alternative is saying yeah, God just didn't want to because he had a better idea, you know, and thought it really was for the best. And you're like, what? I'll tell you, uh, 9-11 really shook my belief in intercessional and interventionist prayer, right? Because I, I thought, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of the people on those planes and thinking, do you mean to tell me there wasn't a single devout believer of the correct theology in whatever religion who wasn't on that plane praying with every fiber of their being mm-hmm. that it doesn't crash? Uh, and that, you know, when I've seen uh, Pentecostal, you know, even in the hardcore scene, bands, you know, pray storms away and cause, yeah. you know, that, that sort of stuff. And again, I'm not, not a value judgment, not knocking anybody, but uh, I just can't. I don't think God is something you can command to send a storm elsewhere. I might be wrong, but this this feels a lot more in line with, uh, yeah, and sort of the deist kind of uh divine clockmaker, right? Like he want God winds the clock and, but, uh, but, the, yeah, but, but, I, it's, the but it's more participatory, like, right? It's not yeah, yeah, yeah. Set, so the, setting the into DS motion. Is so, so, um, hands off. And this is like the opposite of that in a certain sense, but it's, uh, uh it is, it, it really makes sense of a lot of the, the intuitions of just your everyday person, especially your everyday Christian believes that God hears and responds. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of like actual already going on, like no, God's not actually changing in response to uh, your prayer or your hope or your feeling or whatever. So um, here, I'll send you this other one too. Yeah. I'm going to deep dive into this stuff for sure. Cause it is right up my alley. And I, you know, it reminds me, Got another full circle moment for our conversation. I went to go see Rob Bell speak at Largo in Los Angeles, which is like a little like 300 cap room or something. I loved seeing comedy there. And uh, Rob Bell was doing a thing on the, uh, it was when he was just about to put out, I think, a book about the how the Bible was created. He did this huge performance, in-depth, mind-bending thing. And Pete Rollins actually was like the quote-unquote opening act he actually came up beforehand and did a, a half hour or something on pyrotheology mm-hmm. and then both of them did a Q&A together at the end and you know I'm just sitting there like wrapping my head around all these ideas and, you know listening to these two brilliant thinkers and someone stands up and he finally has an opportunity to ask his question of these two guys after you know a couple hours of what we've all just witnessed and he goes but okay so Jesus says, you know, he's the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way. (laughs) And it's like, you can feel the room like, oh, you know, and he's like, are you guys Christians? And um, I don't remember which of them said it, but one of them was just like, that's not the right question. (laughs) And I I remember in that moment being like, I'm finally at a point in my life where I I understand what they mean. Like, Mm -hmm. I remember even that that guy who stood up and asked the question, I remember that mindset of like, but tell me that, oh, what do you, you know, here's my checklist. Yeah, what do you, what are you, what are you checking there. these boxes? You know? And mm-hmm. then that even includes when I was 
becoming more progressive in my faith and was, you know, quote unquote, liberalizing certain ideas. I still had a checklist that just changed, you know? Yeah. You Are, know who is your church gay affirming? What? I said, do you want to know who your champion is? Yeah. And you feel like right. you're worried that you're, you know, you're do you, following do the you wrong team's champion. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's the wrong, those are the wrong questions. So, yeah. Cool, man. Well, it's good hanging with you. Well, thanks for carving out so much time for me. This has been, uh, one of the best of these. I had a feeling it would be great. And it was. So good talking to you, man. Thanks again. And uh, I'll chat with you sometime soon.